Join me in prayer. O Lord, we come this day in need of instruction. We come this day in need of light, of nothing less than the powerful grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it's been a delight for me over the last year or so to get to know your pastor Chuck as he comes time and again to study in the library at RTS. And I I knew from the very beginning that anyone who would drive two hours to get to a library was my sort of person, so we hit it off right away. And it's a delight to be here this morning, and it's a delight to see uh, my friend Ryan Reeves, who you all have been kind enough uh, in encouraging to come and to bless our students at RTS regularly over the years. He's been a great benefit to us. So it's a great joy to see him, to worship with him. And I've heard much of your congregation. It's a delight to be with you and to worship the Lord with you this day. And what better thing to consider this year and in this time and place than Jesus' call to follow me, that you're considering this Lenten season. If there's anything we need to understand, perhaps it's what's involved in the task of discipleship. And so this morning, I'm eager to look at Matthew 9 with you and to ask the question, what does authenticity really look like? There are different visions of what it would mean to be authentic. Jesus describes here in this passage and throughout the course of his ministry, particularly as Matthew records it for us, what it means to be an authentic follower of Christ. And I think it's worthy of our attention this day. And perhaps to begin to see what's going on in this passage and what it might mean for each of us, it's worth reflecting a bit on tradition. When I say tradition, I don't immediately suggest really formal, fancy things, but rather the traditions of our lives. If you've been around small children, you'll know that traditions can be settled very quickly. I find rather often that if I'm going about town with either of my sons, and we're heading off perhaps to an athletic practice or to a a play date at the park or something, plans may change and we'll have to go a different way or we'll have to make a stop to get some food. And before I know it, the next time we're making this outing, I'll find out that that was a tradition. That was something that's expected. It may have actually been an, an audible, completely unplanned and unintended, You know, that we would get a flat tire and have to fix it every time that we go to practice. But they will get in their heads the notion that things are to be done again and again by rote. Whether they're things that are good and well-planned or things that are happenstance, even strange. And you know, we get that way with religion oftentimes. Perhaps you know that famous spiritual, that remarkable hymn, of the era just after the American Civil War in the 1870s. It was about the only hymn that both black and white churches alike sung. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me, right? It's a rather simple song commending old religion as being good enough for us because of its familiarity. And Jesus in this passage is really challenging some traditions of the day. 
But what I want you to see is that he's challenging these traditions of the day, these protocols of social mores, of the way you behave in this time and place, and drawing them back to a deeper tradition, to a deeper understanding that's far more radical. He's confronting some of the protocols that are actually rather recent, and he's calling them back to God's word, drawing their attention to a remarkable saying in Hosea 6. And I think it's in seeing how he challenges those recent, strange, unhelpful traditions, and in pointing us to a deeper one in God's word, that we see what he says about authenticity and about following him. And so we see there are three moments in this very short passage. The first moment is right there in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed. Jesus breaks a rule, a protocol, a social tradition of the day and of many days. He gets right up in Matthew's business, and he confronts him regarding what would surely be a controversial matter. Now, note, this is a rare occurrence. Matthew, like the other evangelists, doesn't talk about himself much. This is one of but three occurrences where Matthew is identified at all in the 28 chapters of his gospel account. And if you actually read this in light of its immediate context, you'll know that this is not the most uh, positive rendition of Matthew. He's described as one sitting at the tax booth. In our day and age, this would be akin to someone serving uh, sort of as a recruiter for ISIS. The Jews of the day, of course, are living in occupied territory, and the taxes do not, by and large, benefit their own people. They are a means whereby money is taken from the Jewish people, the Hebrews, and then is dispersed up the bureaucratic chain to benefit those in power, right? More broadly, particularly, eventually, the Roman authorities. And here, Matthew is identified simply as one who is basically betraying his own people to get ahead in life. He's the tax collector. Now, nobody likes a tax collector. You drive by, you see the sign, Duval County Tax Collector. You know, you don't get excited. You don't think you'd like to go stop for an afternoon. No one likes this, but you especially don't like this when a tax collector is taking your money, oftentimes in exorbitant amounts, and is giving it over unto a foreign power. Matthew is a turncoat. Matthew is selling out his own people for personal advantage and gain. And Jesus calls to him, rise, and he leaves, and he follows. It's a remarkable process. Notice that there's very little said. Like in the calling of Abram in Genesis 12, Jesus doesn't say where they're going. He simply says that he's to follow me. He upends Matthew's life. Can you imagine a turncoat, a sellout, who has been aiding the oppressive authorities and who is then called to leave that? In leaving the tax booth, Matthew leaves the job that gets him ahead. Matthew leaves the relationship and the peace that he's made with Rome. Matthew journeys off not just anywhere, but with a Jewish rabbi and leader a religious authority amongst the very people whom he's been fleecing for years. When Jesus says, 
follow me. He's bidding Matthew to leave behind any possibility of returning to where he's come from. Matthew cannot go back to Rome. Matthew cannot step back into the tax booth. In following Christ, he is leaving behind anything and everything that he's known as familiar, as trustworthy, as a means of advancement, as a strategy for security. And he's following simply the Jesus before him. I'm struck of the way in which Dietrich Bonhoeffer speaks of this in his remarkable account on the cost of discipleship, reflecting on the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew's Gospel account. Bonhoeffer says this, to follow in Jesus' steps is something which is void of all content. It gives us no intelligible program for a way of life, no goal or ideal to strive after. It's not a cause which our calculation might deem worthy of our devotion, even the devotion of ourselves. What happens? At the call, the disciple leaves all that he has, but not because he thinks that he might be doing something that's worthwhile, simply for the sake of the call. The disciple simply burns his boats and goes ahead. Do you see that? There's no pitch. There's no strategy. There's no promise of this outweighing that. There's simply Jesus calling to us, follow me. This is a wholly personal demand. It's not a matter of sizing up the promise of this way and the hope of that. It's of being captivated, captivated by the man who calls who bids us to come. Jesus calls us to bow the knee and to leave everything else. And we read, amazingly, Matthew does. And that brings us to the second moment in the story, functioning like a ripple effect. We pick up in verse 10, where Jesus breaks a rule again. He breaks a social protocol or tradition of the day. Here, he's going to hang out with the socially unacceptable. We read in verse 10, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Notice that Jesus has confronted Matthew and something remarkable flows from it. Matthew uses the word behold or see here and elsewhere to flag something that you might easily miss, but that is absolutely pivotal to the story. So for instance, in the chapter just prior, in chapter 8, verse 2, he uses the word behold so that you don't miss the identity of the leper who's going to be cleansed. Or in verse 24, he uses the word see or behold so that you don't miss who it is who calms the storm. Or again in verse 29 of chapter 8, so that you don't miss the one who's able to call out and cast out demons. Or later, as in chapter 12, verse 46, I'll use that word behold so that you don't skate past the fact that Jesus redefines the family as he says who his true mother and brothers are, the members of the body of Christ. And here... Matthew uses that word, behold. As you read the story, you might easily miss this. You need to see many more tax collectors, many more sinners come to Jesus. The way in which Jesus has seen and observed and called to and had this remarkable response from Matthew, the tax collector. The way in which he's demanded everything of Matthew 
it has the ripple effect of alluring and of enticing others. We tend to think that it's precisely by toning things down that they'll be more appealing, but Jesus apparently works by a different logic. He challenges Matthew to a completely new way of life in following him. And what do you know, not only Matthew, but the people Matthew has abandoned in his own work serving the the Roman Empire as a tax collector, they too are interested, they're enticed, they want to know more. It doesn't say that they have somehow all converted, but they have converged on Jesus. And he sits here dining with them, this remarkable picture of intimacy. I'm struck by the way in which the contemporary author Alan Jacobs speaks of what he calls the repugnant cultural other. We all have this. It's that category of people who are the outsiders, those who just don't fit, and perhaps those who we would blame for problems that exist or problems that might exist. You could think of all sorts of ways in which we identify people as the repugnant cultural other. It could be Gator fans and Null fans, or it could be something perhaps a little less serious in our politically polarized age. Those Republicans or those Democrats, right? Those urban folk or those rural persons. We tend to organize in various ways that we ostracize others. C.S. Lewis would speak of what he called the power of the inner ring. That notion that's seemingly universal in us. This idea that we long to be on the inside. And that in longing to be on the inside, we long to be more intimate, more close, more involved than others. And of course, this can be something that others take upon themselves. We can oftentimes feel in different settings that you just don't belong for whatever reason. I remember moving from the deep south to South Florida as a teenager and entering in for the first time into my Spanish class and getting just a a very small taste of what classmates would have experienced as they'd moved from much further away. But for me, it was entering into Spanish class where I was the only non-native speaker in the room. And I immediately felt something of, in those few moments each day, the experience of being an outsider, of not being able to, to move and manage as smoothly as others. That's a trifling experience of what we all experience in some fashion and what many experience in such a constant and abiding fashion. And that can have a remarkable effect on someone. I think of Toni Morrison's first novel. Perhaps some of you have read Toni Morrison. And in her first novel, a book called The Bluest Eye, she describes this little 10-year-old girl named Pecola Breedlove who's been abused and mistreated by a father, thus abandoned by a mother, shunned by many in the community. And throughout the entire book, throughout this tragic story, she keeps speaking at the end of each day. She keeps pondering the way in which her eyes aren't blue enough for her to matter. That symbol of what beauty is for this little black girl is a constant symbol of her exclusion, of her isolation, of the fact that she just doesn't match up. And notice that's the kind of person that Jesus is with at this meal. In his day and age, it's not the color of eyes, but it's the shape of religion, the tax collector and the sinner, the sellout and the impure, the person who would 
work with the oppressors of the Jewish people and those who wouldn't match up to the holiness codes of that day and age. Jesus is willing to dine with them. Jesus is willing to engage with them. Jesus is seemingly glad that they have come to him. And it's here that we see the third moment where Jesus really explains what's going on and suggests something of what authenticity might look like. Because he's called Matthew and Matthew's friends have come and they're hearing him out at the table and then the cynics arrive. Then the cynics arrive. We read on, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Notice, we get an added wrinkle here. It's not in the accounts in Mark 2 or Luke 5, but Jesus is going to explain why he dines with tax collectors and sinners. And in doing so, he's going to point us to Hosea 6, a remarkable and a strange text, a text that's misunderstood in a lot of ways to describe Christian authenticity. But it's worth noting why he brings it up. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the seemingly religious zealots of the day, they say, why, why would your teacher eat with the folks who sell our people out and who don't keep the Lord's law? Why would he dine with them rather than with us or people like us? Why would he hang out with the repugnant other? Now notice they don't ask this of Jesus. They ask it of his disciples, and Jesus overhears it, and he is willing to engage. Just as he's willing to dine with the outsider and the sinner, so he's serious enough and loving enough to engage with the misperceptions of the religiously problematic folk like the Pharisees. And we see that he addresses them. He begins with what on the face of it might seem to be a compliment, but you quickly learn it's not. He says, well, the physician doesn't come for the well, but for the sick. And they might be thinking, well, he's called us the well. He suggested that he's coming to eat with them because they are the sick. They are the ones in need of help. But then Jesus goes on and he says something staggering. He says, go and learn what this verse means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Notice, the teachers of the law of God's word have suggested Jesus is acting out of step with the traditions of God's word. And Jesus doesn't say, something new is going on. He doesn't say, you don't understand me. He tells them, you need to go learn God's word and what it says. It's not like they understand the past and the tradition. Well, he's confronting them there and then, just as he'll confront the two disciples on the Emmaus Road when he meets them on Easter Day and they're walking along despondent and despairing and he asks them why and they say, are you the only one who hasn't heard that Jesus, this remarkable man of power, was killed only two days ago? And he calls them foolish ones and weak in faith for not believing what the scriptures said. Notice he doesn't chastise them for not listening to him, though he's taught them for three years. He chastises his disciples for not listening to what the scriptures say. And so it is here. He chastises the Pharisees 
as those who need to go and learn the very scriptures that they hold over others. And he points them to this text. He points them to Hosea 6. And it's worth reading just a few verses beyond the immediate line that he quotes. The immediate line sounds like he's suggesting that we need to value mercy rather than sacrifice. Perhaps we need to value care for others rather than worship for God. Or perhaps we need to value some sort of inner affection and emotion, some way of heart rather than some concrete action and behavior. But I think if we look at Hosea 6, we see there's something far more radical than any of that that Jesus has in store for them. Then he points them to true authenticity. If we read in Hosea 6, this remarkable prophetic account where God is addressing his people and their unfaithfulness. We read this in the first few verses of Hosea 6, beginning in verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. There is this contrast, steadfast love, or later rendered or translated mercy, rather than sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. To understand that contrast, though, I think it's helpful to jump back one verse. One verse, and notice the image that's used. It's a remarkable image. I experienced it just this morning leaving Orlando early as a fog was there over the ground. We read in verse 4, Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Jesus is not challenging the Pharisees, and God is not challenging Israel for utterly abandoning him in every respect. Or for doing outward things but not having the right feelings. He's challenging them for not having steadfast love. For being like the dew that is there but quickly dissipates. The fog, the morning cloud that seems present and even hard to maneuver through perhaps on a road early in the morning. But that an hour or two later is an utter afterthought. He's describing them to what we might call a Florida thunderstorm. Seemingly cataclysmic in the moment, and yet what? An hour, two hours later, the ground is dried up because it has swallowed all the rains that fell. What we see here is that Jesus is calling them into account for a lack of wholeness, a lack of integrity. Their life isn't whole. What they do in worship is not matched with how they relate to others. They delight in that inner ring. They delight in being on the inside. And they're willing to shun out the sick, the hurting, the sinner, and the outsider so that they might be more in. They might be those who belong more thickly. They are really willing to close the doors of the hospital so that they can be there and focus upon God. It's not for nothing that Jesus makes the same point in the story of the Good Samaritan. 
The danger of the religious worker is not in being a religious worker, but in believing that they need to cross to the other side so that they aren't distracted from their divine service. Jesus isn't somehow suggesting that worship is bad. He's suggesting that worship that doesn't lead to whole life transformation, that doesn't lead to discipleship in every sphere of life, isn't really worship, isn't steadfast. And this word that he uses here for steadfast love is a word that's so rich in the Bible. It's a word that's used time and again in texts like Jeremiah 31 where God speaks of the covenant fidelity, the faithfulness, the vow keeping that God longs for his people to have. That God shows to us as being one who keeps his word, who doesn't waver or change, and that by his spirit longs for us to be as well. This is why it's not for nothing. When Chuck led us in our confession of sin, he reiterated the fact that Jesus describes the law as having two parts to the greatest commandment. That you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that takes the form throughout the week in every sphere of life with all that you are of loving neighbor as self. And that's why as Matthew brings his gospel toward its close in chapter 25 and Jesus speaks of judgment day and of what God will point out when people come before him and are condemned. He will call them to account, we read in Matthew 25 from verse 31 on, for not loving him, Jesus. But the way in which it will be demonstrated that they didn't love Jesus is precisely in their unwillingness to care for the orphan to care for the widow, we might extend, to care for the disabled person, to care for the senior, to care for the child, to care for the person who didn't fit our particular socioeconomic bracket, to care for the person of the other political party, to care for the migrant, to care for the person who's just difficult and cranky at times. Inasmuch as you didn't do it unto them, you didn't do it unto me. Authenticity isn't so much about having a particular pitch of feeling, but that our feelings and our thoughts and our volitions and choices and our relationships and our resources and our time, every nook and cranny of our lives is called by Christ to be surrendered, to be given over. That there is not one sphere of our existence over which he doesn't say, follow me. As he said to Abram, go out from your father's country. As he says to Matthew, follow me, leave behind the tax booth, the security, leave behind the strategy and the significance. That in every sphere of life, not just the liturgical on Sunday morning, but also the vocational throughout the week, the relational in our conversations, the financial in our resources, the schedule in our time, the emotional in our affections, in every sphere of our life. He calls us to that integrity of heart, that our very being would be whole. This is a crucial focus of Jesus that's brought out by Matthew. A century ago, there was a a remarkable man named Abraham Kuyper. He's the kind of person who leads people in my field as a theologian to feel 
very unaccomplished because not only was he a professor and a writer, but he was a founder and president of a university and he ran a, a leading periodical on the side and then in free time he was prime minister of the Netherlands. He seemingly did it all. And when he traveled to this country just over a century ago, he famously said that there's not one square inch over this earth, but that Jesus Christ claims it and says as Lord, it's mine. But I think as we read this passage, that truth, which is important, is personalized. What does integrity look like for the Christian? It means that we acknowledge what Jesus says and what the Pharisees seem to hedge against, that there's not one nook and cranny of yourself. There's not one square inch of your person and everything that makes you you, but that Jesus says, mine. Not just your Sunday morning, but your whole week. Not just your words, but also your inner life. Not just the resources you might tithe or offer, but the deployment of all your capital in every form. That Jesus says, follow me. I think if we're honest, we have to admit we oftentimes hedge. We tend to think of the Pharisees as zealots. But Matthew highlights how Jesus so often attacks the dangerous teaching of the Pharisees. The Pharisees called for love, but they called for love of your neighbor, defined fairly narrowly. And so Jesus will say, you need to love even your enemy. They called for purity of our bodies and, and how we behaved sexually in chastity and fidelity. But they spoke only of outer physical behavior. And so Jesus will say, you need to make sure that you don't simply commit adultery in body, but also that your heart is pure. Whether it's the inner and the outer, whether it's the insider and the outsider, again and again, Jesus is calling us to be whole. That's why Matthew 5.48 will speak in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount that you must be perfect even as my heavenly Father is perfect. He's not saying there that you need to be sinless and blameless. Though that would be a good idea. You won't muster it. And that's not his point. And that's why a few verses later he'll remind us to pray for our sins to be forgiven every day in the Lord's Prayer. His point is you must be whole. You must be complete. You don't hedge off your life. You don't restrict God's demands on you like the Pharisees do. You surrender every facet. And you will do it imperfectly. But you're to do it perseveringly by His Spirit's grace. You're to do it trustingly like a child who longs to see their parents raise them up and discipline them and resource them and lead them on into maturity. And so Jesus bids each of us, like Matthew, to follow Him. And this morning I would ask, where is that area? Where is that area where, like the Pharisee, you are restricting, you are hedging, you are somehow stymieing God's call to your sanctification, to your discipleship? Where is it where you are guarding it as your own? This is the way I've always done it. This is the way my people, my family, my friends do it. Where is the area where you haven't yet imagined what following Christ might mean? As we listen to the words of Jesus described for us by Matthew, he bids each of us to imagine a life that involves leaving the familiar and following the one 
who is risen and who is Lord of all. Let's pray and ask that he might impress on each of us the way in which that kind of faith and that kind of surrender could look like in our lives and in our community as a witness to his grace. Would you join me in praying? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that at the right time you sent our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that he didn't hesitate but to come to people like us and that he was willing to come and to sit and dine with sinners such as we. And we pray that we might see not only the way in which he's come near, but that the way in which he wants to change all of us. He's not satisfied to save us simply in eternity to come, but he also wants to renew and redeem us here and now by his grace. And so we pray that like a surgeon, you might take his holy word and you might impress it upon our hearts and that it might cut bone and marrow, soul and spirit, that we might, through the living and active word of God, be conformed ever more fully to the image of God in Christ, that we might be made whole a bit more this day, that we might surrender a bit more fully our lives and all that we are to you, that we might look a little more consistently to you in faith, in hope, and in love. We pray this in the strong name of our teacher, our Savior, and our risen Lord, even Jesus. Amen.